The first reading is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 19. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surfaces of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry, dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seeds in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault to the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Second reading is from John's Gospel, chapter one, verses one to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made, that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not that light. He came only as a witness to that light. The true light that gives the light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and th through the world was made through him. And, uh, as you were, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of a natural descent, nor of human decision, nor husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only God, who is himself God, and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Last Sunday after church, uh, Margie and I met, uh, met a Kathy who had been a neighbour of ours when we lived in, a, in another building before we moved to our present building. I was still wearing my clerical collar down there at Double Bay, uh, and when she saw us, Kathy said to me, oh, you should pray that next year be better than this one. That's what we need and what we're hoping for. I should say that Kathy and her husband Peter are Jewish, so I, I knew immediately what she had in mind. It's funny that although we know in the back of our minds that making January 1 the beginning of a new year is somewhat arbitrary. After all, it was the Romans who gave it to us, and then later on the Christians moved it to March, then later on, under the Pope's guidance, went back to January. <laughs> but still, even if we know in the back of our minds it's arbitrary, we do take it as a time for a new beginning, a turning over a new leaf, a chance to start somehow afresh. And this is the last Sunday of the old year. But I want to talk about beginnings. What a beginning. It's a one-off sermon. It's appropriate also for the season of Christmas. For although already they've sold thousands of hot cross buns, for us Christians, this is still the season of Christmas. It's the first Sunday after Christmas, as it says on the board. <coughs> Something wonderful has happened in human history. Something of profound, of unimaginable significance. Something that changes everything. Something that impacts on everyone. And the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, each in their own way seek to record the significance and story of that something. Each starts their account in a very different way. Here is Matthew. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and so it goes. Giving the province, that the provenance of Jesus the Messiah way back to Abraham, the great patriarch. Mark, as ever, is much more to the point. Though still beginning in a biblical context, in his case, the prophet Isaiah. Quote, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as is written in the prophet Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you who prepare your way. A voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. And he starts the story from there. Luke is the, is the wordiest. He starts, in fact, by not so much starting, but by explaining himself. I quote, 
Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And I too decide to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the, certain, the certainty of the things which you've been taught. And then he begins. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. <coughs> that is, and Zechariah will be the father of John the Baptist. But the gospel of John, the gospel of John begins as no other. It is the most astounding beginning of them all. It's the beginning before all beginnings. John 1 verse 1, 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that's a beginning which is not a beginning in any normal sense at all. It goes back not to John the Baptist or to John the Baptist's father, not to Abraham, not even as the scriptures do, to the beginning of all things. In the beginning, God created in the heavens and the earth. No, this is a beginning that is not in time at all. A beginning not before something that comes next. A beginning that is eternal in God himself. The beginning that is before all beginnings. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The point is, the Word has no beginning. The Word is. The Word is in the presence of God. The Word is God. The next sentence, verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. The Greek language has gendered pronouns, and so he is a good translation, although possibly, controversially, at this early stage, we could even translate it, it. It was with God because as present, we've no clear indication that this word is going to be a personal agent. John will slowly unfold as, as it goes along. In other words, the Gospel of John begins with the very mystery of the being of God himself. God and the word of God, who is included within the divine identity, who is with God, a grander beginning I cannot imagine. But the opening of the Gospel of John, or perhaps an overture of the Gospel of John, has more to unfold. And we can divide the rest of this prologue in John 1 to 18 into three further sections as we move from eternity to time. Verse 3 to 5, coming to being through the Word. Verse 3, through him, or it could still be it, through it, the Word, all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Everything that is, that has come to be, and that's the actual literal meaning of the word, the NIV's translated as made. I think I prefer the word come to be here and other places. Made is narrower. What, whatever has come to be has come to be through and not without the word. All being, all being depends upon the word. All things came into being through him and nothing has come into being other than through him. And as we understand things, this means all universes, if there are any more than one, I don't know. But if there are, all universes, all energy, all mass, all the laws of physics, time itself, space, 
all, the lot, came into being through the word. And yet it's even more than that. God's word is also the light of humanity in a world where darkness threatens. Verse 4, in him, or in it, was life, and the life, first of in it was life, and the life was a light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word overcome is a word that can mean to grab. It can mean both in English, can mean both to comprehend, to get it, or to comprehend in a sense of grab it and kill it. You know. Either way, the light's shining in the darkness. The darkness doesn't get it, or can't get it, or doesn't, doesn't overcome it. So not only is the word that by which all things come to be, the word is also life itself, which is the light of humanity, which even I find hard to put into words. It's so great to know how to put that into words. But it means that the word is a source, of, at least it means this, the word is a source of any knowledge and truth, any human knowledge and truth. All this is saying is that the word, the word is not some outside alien. The word is both intrinsic to the identity of God even though the word can be in some sense distinguished from God. But it's also the deep truth and power behind all being, behind all that exists. The next verses 6 to 13, we read about the coming of that word into the world, into creation. Reading on John 1, next you suddenly find what you don't expect. A complete shift of gear. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that all through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. You think, who, who is this John, this witness to the light coming into the world? No, it's not what you expect. It's not John of the Gospel of John, which is rather confusing, I find. That John is present in the Gospel of John, although never named. He's never named at all. He's simply called the disciple whom Jesus loved, or sometimes just the other disciple. And at the very other end of the Gospel, as we'll see in a moment, he also testifies. In fact, the whole Gospel, as we'll see, is testimony. Verse 21, 24. This is a disciple who testifies to these things and has written about them, and we know his testimony is true. But this first John which, by the way, all four Gospels begin with, is the guy I call the other guy. This is the other guy. Identified as John because of his characteristic behaviour, the baptizer, for he came as a prophet, calling Israel to repentance and used the washing of water as a symbol and expression of repentance. More importantly, where our presence, he is the one who testifies. Verse 8. He himself was not the light. He came to testify to the light. He was not the light, he came to testify to the light. Now this concept of testimony will be crucial for the Gospel of John, in fact crucial for the Christian faith. Crucial for the Christian faith. Testimony is when someone sees or experiences something and then tells another what they've experienced or seen so that the other can share in some way in what the first person saw. Not that it's when a person sees or experiences something 
shares it with another so that the other is able in some sense to share in what the person heard or saw. And that's what John's gospel is. And the first testifier is this guy, John the baptizer. Then you realize that testifying to the light is not just bearing witness to an eternal truth, but something quite astounding, as the next sentence tells us, verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This coming into the world means an historical coming into human space and time. It's the entry into the world by the very word through which everything has existence. A strange kind of doubling up, if you know what I mean. A kind of doubling up all through the world, through the word rather, then the word it's itself enters into the world through which all things came to being. That light which gives light to all comes into, into the world. And you may think nothing could be more somehow right, more natural. Of course the word belongs in that through which all things, that which has come to being through the word, of course. And yet, that coming comes with a tragic dimension, a terrible irony, a sad irony. It is a divisive entry. Verse 9 and 10, the true light that gives light to everything, everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. Though the world was made through him, literally came into being through him again, the world came into being through him, the world did not recognise him, literally did not know him. The word came into, the, in, in, into that world which had come into being through him, but the world did not know him. He was a stranger, unknown. Or as the next sentence puts it, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now that is very weird. And yet, as John's gospel unfolds, you'll find this tragic failure to recognise the light, the word, the life, is a major theme, a major theme. Yes, something wonderful has happened, but it is opposed. But by the very grace and power of God, there are others for whom it is very different. The light for them will give power to become children of God, a miraculous thing. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then the writer stresses, this is not some natural thing. Quote, children born not of natural descent or of human decision or the husband's will, but born of God. Born of God. And finally, verses 14 through 18, the glory of the word among us. As yet, we have not told how the light came into the world. Now it's made explicit. Verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Became flesh. Flesh has about the sense of, of vulnerability, the sense of mortality. It means that he took humanity, flesh, 
to himself. We do understand this as he added humanity, not himself changed into something he wasn't before. The word stop, doesn't stop being the word, but takes humanity to its himself. And that means really fully human, as we say in the creed. Not a covering, not let's pretend. One of us, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That last phrase echoes as so much else does in this prologue. The story of the Exodus. When God's, the climax of the Exodus, when God rescues his people from Israel is what? It's the coming of God in his glory to dwell among his people, to tabernacle among them. That's, that's the great climax of that whole first five books of scripture, which is the heart of scripture, the first five books. God dwelling, and that's exactly the same word used here. He made his dwelling among us this word become flesh. And they add, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. This is also testimony to us from a group who simply call themselves we. Now I know the word we is in English, as by the way in Greek, but not in other languages, not in Aboriginal languages I discovered the other day, is ambigu ambiguous. It can mean either we, meaning all of us, we are here in this room, or we meaning um, just a few of us. We on this side, you know, we, we over here, uh, we up the front. Right? And one of, the, one of the issues, by the way, in Bible interpretation is to work out when the writer means we, you all, or we, us, alone. It, it's quite significant, actually. And uh, a, lot of, lot, a lot of people, illegitimately, in my view, take we, meaning we apostles, and spit it, well, but that's, that's for another day. Here, though, I think the we does not mean all of us. We have seen his glory is referring to a particular group of people. We have seen his glory. Now, who are these people? We've already heard of the gospel, the testimony of John, but there's a more significant testimony hidden in the phrase, we have seen his glory. Who are they? Well, as the gospel unfolds, we become aware that Jesus has a group around him who are watching and observing his disciples. And so in chapter 2, verse 11, after the miracle of the changing of water into wine at the, at the wedding of Cain of Galilee, these are the words that follow verse 11 of chapter 2. What Jesus did here in Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. We call them miracles. The Gospel of John calls them signs, raising the dead, feeding thousands with bread, these things. And they're signs that reveal his glory. So by seeing the sign, you're seeing his glory. And that's what we did. In fact, towards the end of the gospel, after the description of many of these signs, the authors kind of do a kind of summary. And this is the summary in chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you, the you means you reader, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is, we are testifying to you that you who we have, we've seen, we're testifying to you so that you may share with us in that which we've experienced. In fact, look at the first, chapter, first opening paragraph in the letter of John later on. That's exactly what he says. What we've touched, we share with you that you may share with us in him. 
And in the last chapter of John, chapter 21, as I said, the principal witness among them is allowed at last to intrude. Throughout the gospel, he's, he's a, this, this, this sort of shadowy figure, just called sometimes the other disciple, and then he's come up with the disciple whom Jesus loved, and finally at the end, he's a, they never named, this is said of him. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and has written them, and we know his testimony is true. But most importantly, the glory they have seen is, quote, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Now, this is the climax, I think, of this prologue. No longer God and the Word, where we started, or light. Now it's something deeper and more profound. It's now Father and Son, the only begotten. Father and the only begotten, the one and only. Now, Greek philosophers used the phrase, the word, logos, uh, to mean, and this is especially the Stoics, to mean the supernatural order behind the cosmos, the kind of reason, the structure of things. But for John's gospel, the universal cosmic order could be identified with the one and only the divine son of God who came from the father. Not merely a principle, but personal. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, what this means for Christians is what I, I could call a radical personalizing of the universe. It's a, the unprecedented idea that the power behind the world behind all that is, not just the world, but everything, is personal. Not just personal, is love, actually, if I go that further. Now, today, you may think that's obvious, but it's not obvious at all. It's a radical understanding of reality, profoundly important, to understand that what is, 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 is a gift, is, 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 a, is a gift, not just, is one of, it's not just what is. That profoundly changes how you treat everything. That at its heart, Existence is a result of gift of love and created for love. And that it may respond and be in relationship with he who brought it into being, the God who is himself love. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is a very significant phrase, that last phrase, full of grace and truth. It's almost, reverently, a cliché, in the scriptures about the character of God, almost like a cliche. Uh, it's put in very different ways in the Hebrew and the Greek, but another way to put it is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth, steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the classic description of God in the Old Testament, the classic description. Let me go to the, to the climax. Exodus 34, the Lord God passes by Moses and proclaims his name, I quote, as he passed in front of the Lord, he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. And it's, you'll find that Jonah complains about this. Jonah knows that what God is like. That's what pisses Jonah off about being a prophet. It's everywhere. It's in Micah. It's all around the scripture. Full of grace and truth. So the glory that they see in the, in the, is the glory of the Father. 
It's the glory of the Father, you see, reflected in the one and only. It's the glory of the eternal divine relationship of Father and Son in the Spirit. The glory of full of grace and truth. The story of love and faithfulness. Each giving and receiving from each other mutual love and delight and trustworthiness. That's the God revealed in the word. That's the glory that we have seen that you may share in. And then suddenly the text is interrupted by a second reference to John the baptizer, the testifier, suitably placed by brackets by our modern translation, I notice. Verse 15. And it's rather, it's rather, I say, rather Irish in the way he puts it, if you don't mind me saying so. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he's before me. <laughs> Got that? He who came after me, that's true in literal ministries of timetable, surpasses me because he was before me. And then we get the added testimony of, we, of the we again, only now it's the personal experience of the disciples, not just what they've seen, but what they've received. And perhaps this time, the we begins to bleed a bit across, at least offering a promise to the reader. Verse 16, out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. Literally, we've all received grace upon grace. Out of his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. And I think it's the next sentence, verse 17, which is the climax of this overture, this beginning in the Gospel of John. And in it we have two firsts, hitherto not revealed. The first first is that the wider context is for the first time given of the coming of the one and only in the story of the long, bigger story, the prequel, and what we call the Old Testament. But it's given to us as a contrast. Contrast between Moses the great prophet, the greatest of all prophets, to whom God gave his Torah, and now the one and only. For the law, they write, was given through Moses. Grace and truth, here we are again, came through, and now for the very first time, he is named. He has not been named the entire prologue, but now we name him. We give him his historical name. He is Jesus Messiah, or Jesus Christ. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, the very glory of God, you see, came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth, the very character of God, has come through Jesus Christ. What a remarkable journey we've been on in these first few paragraphs. We started with the, in the eternity of beginning before there was a beginning, in God and his eternal word. And now we come down to the man, the man whose birth we celebrate traditionally around this time, the man called Jesus, with the, with, the, with the title Christ added. And then there is a stunning conclusion in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only, the only son, who himself is God and in, in the closest relationship to the Father has made him known. The phrase closest relationship to the Father is the NIV translator's attempt to express what is in a much more concrete phrase, literally, in the bosom of the Father or the chest of the Father. It's referring to someone leaning at, at, a, at a banquet or a dinner where you lay down in those days and you lie up against someone. 
The one and only who is in the bosom of the Father, in the chest, right? That's, that's the image. I guess closest relationship is corrective, slightly anodyne, as a phrase. That is, nothing less than knowing God, the God whom no one has seen, has been made known, has been unpacked through the one and only to whom we testify to you. That's this wonderful thing. And so the prologue over, the beginning finished. The main gospel then begins. The next sentence begins the story proper. Verse 19, now this is John's testimony when Jewish leaders sent priests, but off we go, off we go. What a beginning, what a beginning. This remarkable passage we looked at today tells us so much. We began with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we end with, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only who himself is God in his closest relation to the Father has made him known. Yet there's so much that's not said yet. For example, there's no mention of the death and resurrection of the Son of God, which will dominate the gospel story to follow. But this is enough, this is enough. In this early stage, we hear the witnesses of the gospel calling upon us, calling upon you and me to receive him, that is, to believe in his name. And so, paradoxically, by confessing him as the one and only, we're given the right also to become children of God. By confessing the one and only Son, we ourselves are given the, the privilege not just to know God, but to become the children of God who are born of God. What a beginning.